You are listening to the Sound and Faith podcast coming to you from Faith Baptist Fellowship in beautiful Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I'm Pastor Thomas Lawson. And I'm Pastor Mike Johnson. And our aim is to encourage the saints of Faith Baptist Fellowship to believe sound doctrine and to live lives that adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our aim. That's our aim. It's a good aim. It's a good aim. It's a very good aim. Pastor Mike, um, are you ready for Christmas? I think so. I mean, how do you be... Yeah, my... I'm, I love Christmas. Family's coming. Going to have a good time. How about you? Uh, I, I think we are. You know, we've got some stuff for the kids. It's a good time of celebration. You know, we live very far away from family, uh, but our, our family just, I mean, we love that day. Yeah. You know, it's a its a day of celebration. It's a day of rejoicing. Yes. And uh, we always begin, one of our traditions, uh, you know, for the kids is that um, the cue for them to come into the living room and, you know, begin our big Christmas celebration uh, is I blast uh, O Come All Ye Faithful through all of the Alexa dot oh, devices wow. in the house. Yeah. So I have it set up to where on Christmas morning I can say, you know, I'll say the name of the uh, the device. I'm not going to say it because we actually have one in this room right oh. here. And I'll say, uh, you know, play O Come All Ye Faithful huh. and it'll play it on all the devices. And no one minds. No one minds at all. And that's their cue to know, hey, we're, we're going to start our times of uh, celebration, opening gifts that- and stuff. To wake the kids up, I used to do almost the same thing, but I'd I'd ask him to play "Who Let the Dogs Out," <laughs> real loud, <laughs> volume ten. "Who Let the Dogs Out?" Yeah, well, it's we had a great uh, staff party the other day. It was awesome. Really it was nice. awesome. Yeah, you know, twenty the, something people. It, was it really we, we had kind of this um, uh, Mexican theme. Yeah, we had Qdoba, sombreros, sombreros, um, and uh, you know, one thing I think we missed that we could have had. Is we could have had a pinata yes. of Arius. <laughs> and then we could have all dressed up like Santa Claus and punched it. Huh. Santa Claus is with sombreros. Yes, yes. Yeah. Maybe we should explain that joke real quick. So, Go for it. you know, so Arius uh, was a heretic who denied the uh, full divinity, full humanity of Christ. And as the myth goes, and I think it's probably a myth at the end of the day, although there might be some ed- element of truth to this, that the actual person, St. Nicholas, uh, in church history, at was it was it at the Council of yeah. Nicaea? Uh, actually, punched Arius in the face for his blasphemy, and uh, so the joke you know that goes around in theological circles is that you know Santa Claus takes gifts to kids and punches heretics <laughs> in the face. So, missed opportunity there. Yeah. Hey, uh, we've got a great show. So the, I'm really excited about this because I mean, last week we did an Ask Anything episode. Yeah. And. Our, our plan is to kind of do this every couple of weeks, but we have had so many questions yes. come in. We're not even going to answer them all today. We, we can't even get to them all today, so it's going to have to be another episode. So if you send in a question and we don't get, get to it today, we, we're sorry about that, but we, we plan to get to it. Yes. Um, but we just said, hey, why don't we do a whole other Ask Anything episode uh, today? A back-to-back with last week, and let's just, you know, dive into these questions here. Sounds awesome. That sounds great. So... You want me to read the first one? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so this comes in from Anonymous, um, and the question reads, according to Luke 2, everyone went to his own town to register because of the required census, and Joseph had no family who was able to... who was also... I'm sorry, did Joseph have no family who was also returning to register or who lived there. Sorry, trying to get this right. Still, who would have been with them also? It always appears that they are all alone and looking for lodging 
but I would think that there would be some family there um, along, unless the family was perhaps not supportive of the situation. Do either of you have any insight to share? So basically, why were they? Why does it look like they're alone? That's the question. Right. Why, why does it? Did they have no family? Was the family objecting to the situation? That's that's the question. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, good response. So I I you know scripture doesn't tell us why. Right. Um, there's a number of things I think we could surmise. Um, so the word that we oftentimes see in Luke chapter 2 when it says there was no room for them in the inn, uh, the Greek word there can also be translated guest room. So it is very possible, and I hope I'm not you know slaying any sacred cows here when I say when we think of a stable... Sacred reindeer. Yeah, a sacred reindeer. <laughs> when, we, when we think of Jesus being born in a stable... Um, that that may not have been the case uh, because of the way that b- people lived back in those days. The the animals could have actually been in part of the house. There could have been a, a like a wing of the house where the animals stayed, and so it could have been. And I, this isn't one of these hills to die on, but it could have been that Joseph and Mary were with people they knew, uh, but there was no room in the guest room of the house, and so they had to kind of stay over in the wing of the house where the animals were. And when Jesus was born, Mary wrapped him and lied, laid him in a manger. And again, that's conjecture. This is just kind of thinking through sure. this, but that's that's within the realm of possibility. And even if that were the case, it doesn't take away from the humility of Correct. it all. Correct. Absolutely. Mean, the, the Son of God born as a human and laid in a manger. That was not something that was um, like connected with royalty, connected no. with high honor. Uh, this is So it doesn't take away at all from the humility, which is really the point of us understanding, and I think the Gospels try to help us see this. Uh, this was a humble birth. Yeah. And you, you had some thoughts on that, too. I think that were, were good, and you mentioned, you know, just we're talking about several generations could have passed. Uh, just that we don't know. We, we don't, don't know. know Joseph's family situation. We don't know that, uh, that he had people in Bethlehem, that he, you know, he was, uh, that was his lineage, and he was going according to his lineage, you know, right. um, because of his tribe, um, not because of um, uh, necessarily that mom and dad were there, that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah. And we have no evidence that the extended family were objecting to the situation. So. Yeah, very good. Yeah, good question there. We appreciate that. Um, another question here, uh, anonymously asked, and let me just clarify, when someone asks a question anonymously, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're embarrassed by their question, I don't right. think. It's just, you know, maybe they don't want their name mentioned uh, right. with the question. We might still mention their name. We no, might. no, we won't do that. <laughs> no, we won't do that. We'll, we'll be kind. Um, the next question here comes, again, anonymous, anonymously to us. What advice would you give to a Christian couple who disagree on which church to worship at, and what are your thoughts on the couple alternating attendance together at two different churches to satisfy each person's preference? Okay, so I think it would be difficult to be good churchmen and do that. That, mm-hmm. that last that last little point, alternating between two different churches to satisfy different preferences. I think the couple needs to talk, uh, uh, needs to converse, and I think they should land on a church. Yeah. I think they should land on one church and go and be members and love the church and participate. And I, I it just seems like it would be very difficult to have a meaningful relationship with a church um, that, that you're not connected with. So I, I think I would I think my advice would be discuss what the big differences are and and where the common points of agreement is 
and and go from there. Look look for the best circumstance with, with that. The, and uh, at the end of the day, if one of the churches doesn't preach the gospel, um, then then that would be out. Don't go it? to that. Don't church. go to that church. Yes. Yeah. Don't go to a church that does not preach the gospel. I think that's some sound advice. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> you, you know the 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 best case scenario of this question is that there's two traditions that are Bible believing and you know, that love Christ and love the gospel and yeah. don't have false doctrine. And in that case, I would say, uh, look, look, decide together on one of them and, and, and plug in. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll take this, this phrase here, and I don't want to harp on it, but, you know, to satisfy uh, each person's preferences. And, and ultimately, yes, we, we do have preferences. That's why we go to the churches that we go to it, to some degree, but but it's ultimately not about satisfying our, our right. personal preferences. You know, when it when it comes down to finding a sound church, what you're looking for ultimately is is a church that preaches the gospel, a place where you can be discipled and use your gifts to to serve and disciple others. Yeah. Uh, all of those things are important. And, and and one more pastoral word I think is in order, and that is I think I think it would be good to take some time as a couple and commit this question to prayer. And, and not just like, Lord, show us which church we should go to, but also, Lord, would you bring our hearts together on this so yeah. that we're in agreement? And pray fervently for a season on that, and I think the Lord will bring clarity to you. I think that's a good word. Yeah, thanks for that question. All right, Next. last Sunday, two of the worship songs mentioned the word day spring. I know it refers to Jesus, but where does it come from, and what exactly does it mean? And this question comes from Mary. Yeah. And Mary Berger, and I'm going to ask you, since you led worship the last two Sundays. <laughs> and to answer this question, I have my King James Bible. Boom. Right here. Uh, so the, uh, the word dayspring, um, the reason it might be unfamiliar to us, is be because it does come from the Bible, but it comes from the King James translation. Uh, and uh, it comes from Zechariah's, um, whether you want to call this a song or a poem, in Luke chapter 1, verse 78, where he says, Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. Mm -hmm. um, if you go to the ESV, it says sunrise. So it's just an old word that means the sunrise from on high. It's the, it's the breaking forth of the light, right? Uh, the light shining in the darkness. It's a lovely it, word. It is. It's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful expression. But I think Mary's question highlights uh, an important thing to remember in that when we sing, we want to sing with understanding. And, and I have no problem with using older language in our songs because I think it, in a sense, connects us with our, our heritage as believers. We remember that, hey, this song is 300 years old, you know, uh, and in some cases older. And, and we remember that Christians have been singing about God's truth for centuries now. So yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful thing to think of, but yeah, it means sunrise. Yeah. So all, along with that, um, one of the reasons we don't sing only old songs, or we don't sing those old songs without explanation, is because we want them to come from the heart. The worship must come mm, from the heart. Yeah. And so there's explanation. This is why um, you, Pastor Thomas, often explain something um, before a song is sung, so that we are singing and we understand it, and it's true worship, and not just not just surface level things coming mm. out of our mouth. Yeah. So, very good question. Thank you for that, Mary. Uh, this one comes to us from Brad Paulson. He says, can you address how different religions view the Trinity? How do they justify this with all the scriptural evidence? Sure. I mean, there's lots of different religions, and so it's really difficult to 
But let me say this. All the Christian traditions that are truly Christian, they are Trinitarian. That is, they believe right. they believe that God is triune, that God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. And and um and if if they don't affirm that, they're not truly Christian. Uh, let me just say, even if they use the words, because some of the some of the bigger cults would use the word Christian, right? Uh, but they would deny the Trinity, and that would make them not Christian, you know, because they, they believe in a different a different God altogether. Muslims think that we um, that we Christians are polytheists because we believe in the Trinity. Uh, they misunderstand how we view the Trinity. Like we 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 see God is three in one. Yeah, uh, we are monotheists, um, but they would they would say that we're not, and so that's how the how Islam would view that, uh, and then most other religions in the world would straight up deny the Trinity. Yeah, um, I I I think um, if you think about within what might be broadly called Christian religions or religions that are connected to the Bible in some way, uh, you know, you have Jehovah's Witnesses right. who deny, deny the, Trinity. the Trinity. You have Latter Day Saints who deny the Trinity. Yes. Um, you you have other branches out there. There there are Pentecostals who are oneness or modalists. Modalist yep. in that sense. But the oneness Pentecostals is what you're getting at, and they right. they would we would look at those as errors. Right, and and not all. Let me clarify. Not all Charismatics and Pentecostals right. are oneness. Oneness. Uh, the vast majority of them are Trinitarian. Right. Um, and then you have you know I I don't even call them Christian, but like Unitarians and right. such as that, that are that are going to deny the Trinity. That's why I made the distinction, truly Christian would be yeah. Trinitarian, and uh, Roman Catholics, uh, they do believe in the Trinity. Yeah. If if one thing I can add to this, and this is why I, we've been doing the Nicene Creed, um, and I think it's been great to revisit this language that's over 1,600 years old, where the, the doctrine of the Trinity was just so clearly and well-defined. Uh, mm. In the in the life of the early church, and there's other documents in church history out there. The, the Athan- Athanasian, yeah, the yeah. Athanasian Creed is probably the most explicit. Usually, uh, the creed centered on the the issue that was being debated. You know, the Nicene mm-hmm. Creed it was the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Um, that was that was what they were wrestling with, and the creed was birthed out of that. Yeah, uh, Athanasius Creed it was it was the Trinity that was the question. Yeah. Very yeah, very good stuff. Uh, how do they defend this scripturally? I mean, honestly, I I don't see how they do. If you right. if you have a cohesive theology that is based upon the Bible, uh, you you see the Father, the Son, the Spirit. You see that to them are are, are, are given the attributes of God in the words of Scripture uh, that they are worshipped and glorified. Uh, yet there is one God, yes. and we believe there is one God. They they would often um, uh, many of these groups will often start with a very surface level argument of saying well the word Trinity doesn't appear in the in the scriptures yeah. or so, uh, something like that, but the concept the concept is taught very clearly and undeniably yeah very very clearly thank you for that question Brad all right so next question uh, you want to ask this or you want me yeah to? I'll ask this yep. question here um, what is the right way for Christians to approach IFV, which means in IVF, in v, IVF excuse me, in vitro fertilization uh, and other reproductive technologies. These practices are commonplace in the medical community and are rife with ethical considerations while typically being rooted in deep emotion. From a Christian perspective, how might you advise a family considering IVF, in specific, the creation, uh, the creation, the 
creation, selection, implementation, implantation, excuse me, and destruction of embryos. And this one's asked anonymously here, too. It's a really good question, and there are loads and loads of ethical issues uh, pertaining to this. Um, one, you know, like like in a quick thing like we're doing with this podcast, it'd be difficult to really explore it thoroughly. Um, I know that... Um, I know that... Um, what's his name? <laughs> President of Southern Baptist Seminary. Uh, Al Mohler? Yeah, Al yeah. Mohler has discussed this at length, and really, really... Really, he's got some resources on his website, almoller.com, that, that could be helpful there. But I will say this. Um, we as Christians, the, the biggest ethical consideration is the viewing life without dignity, like viewing, mm. v- viewing an embryo, which is life, it's human, yeah. as not being sacred. And, uh, and if, if the process that we're going through with IVF has to do with the destru- destruction of embryos or the um, like the assured destruction, like there's for sure some of these are going to be destroyed. Um, I, we have huge, huge moral considerations yeah. um, because all life is sacred. That's how we view it. All, all of those are made in the image of God, and and we, and, and and therefore, as Christians, we have to, we have to, um, we have to approach this with that in mind. Right. There are some IVF um, paths or pathways uh, that that are more like have much less questions uh, ethic, ethically or morally. Um, one of them is adopting embryos that would otherwise be destroyed. Hmm. And, and, and in that sense, you're kind of saving the embryos. You're, you're viewing those embryos with, with the, the kind of dignity that, that, that um, an image bearer deserves. You're, you want this uh, child to live, yeah. you know, and yeah. so, so that is good. And so it's a great question. You're right, uh, Miss Anonymous or Mr. Anonymous, uh, th- this is loaded with all kinds of uh, ethical questions, and I'd love to talk to you f- with you further about it. And again, Albert Moeller has all kinds of really good resources uh, that he's done on this. Yeah, I would say too. I, I would agree with all of that, Mike. And uh, you know, thanks for really clearly laying that out. You know, this this is something uh, that if uh, if a couple is maybe considering, um, that it, it would be good to maybe. Think through the ethical considerations of yes. this. Think through what what are the implications? Is is this going to result in the destruction of you know fertilized embryos, and and then you know work through those difficult questions like that because obviously we don't want to destroy life. We right. want to value life. It, we believe all life is sacred, created in the image and likeness of God, human beings. Um, and then you know talk to, talk right. to us, talk to the elders of this church, uh, seek prayer, counsel. Um, I'm not a medical professional. I'm not a scientist or anything like that. But of course, we do want to uphold the Word of God as we consider these things, and we want to we want to respect the life that God has created. Amen. Good word. All right. So Max Reagan asks, "What are your thoughts on alcohol consumption, biblically and personally?" Well, like he says, "Love you guys." Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Max. Love you too, Max. Well, like Ephesians four says, you know, do not be drunk with grape juice, but be filled with the Spirit. So. Uh, we we know <laughs> no uh, little joke there. Um, you know uh, th- this is always can be a very touchy question, mm-hmm. especially in in some circles of Christianity. Baptist churches historically, it might have been a sensitive issue. Uh, uh, our personal views uh, in terms of uh, we, our personal views are our biblical views. Right. In that, um, we believe that the Bible does not condemn 
the consumption of alcohol. It condemns drunkenness. It right. condemns losing control of our faculties and our in our senses, uh, it, which can happen with drinking alcohol. Um, but if if alcohol itself, if consuming that in any form were were a sin, then we ha- we'd have huge uh, contradictions happening in Scripture with Jesus turning the water into wine, with Paul telling Timothy, you know, take some wine for your stomach, and and other instances in which we see wine consumed uh, among among believers called a gift from the Lord in in, in the Old Testament. Yeah, I, um, I you know, there's some good reasons for for abstaining from alcohol. Absolutely, and yeah. I, you know, it here's but as a as a guy who loves the Bible, as people pastors who love the Bible, as Bible guys, we don't want to add rules, uh, extra biblical rules to the scriptures. Uh, we see that as wrong. You know, right. so. Um, drunkenness is sin everywhere it's found, and you need to define drunkenness, I think, very conservatively. Like, it's not just losing your faculties, it's, it's when you're under the sway of alcohol. Right, yeah. And, and that's, uh, that's sinful, and we're to, be, we're to be filled with the Spirit, not drunk with the wine. But let's not, add, let's not add rules and impose them on other people. I think Christians should be fully convinced in their own minds. They should think this through. I think an awful lot of um, alcoholism... Uh, started out with Christian freedom, uh, hmm. you, you know, somebody approaching yeah. this and saying, "I have freedom in this," and 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 that that led to not controlling themselves, and you know, uh, things kept going, and and all of a sudden they're sipping something during work. You exactly. Know? Yeah. So yeah. Um, let's be careful. Let's be wise. Let's be prudent. Uh, let's be. Um, people who love the Word of God and don't need other things to have joy. Yeah, it, and if there there are people out there who should not drink, right? And and f- for them, it is a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to others. You know, Paul says we, you know, if if drink, it, we, if if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I do, I, I won't eat it anymore. And right. so I, I think it's important to keep those things in mind. Our context, uh, our own personal. Uh, uh, proclivities towards maybe addiction or overdoing it or excess, and if it means completely abstaining from that, then do that. But this isn't a rule that we could say Christians should not drink that we could pull from Scripture. Scripture right. doesn't say that. Yeah, good. Yeah. Good, good question, Max. And he asks another one. Uh, this is a, a, a second question he submitted. Max uh, also Max Regan actually asked this. It says fasting is referenced several times in the Bible. What are some ways that I should be f- using fasting today? Want me to answer? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, either one of us, but yeah. but yeah, I go ahead with that. Yeah. No, I think fasting is great for focus. It's great for. Um, it, it, I think it's great occasionally to take a take a morning and uh, and 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 skip a few meals, and in that time, um, pray. Use that time to really focus your heart and mind. When you feel those hunger pangs, uh, it's a great time to to go to the Lord in prayer and. Um, remind yourself that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I, I don't think there are hard, fast rules uh, to how you ought to do that. You ought to be fully convinced, again, in your own mind when when and how. But I think from time to time, it's very good to break up the norm, normal <laughs> normal rhythm of eating, you know, yeah. uh, and remind ourselves that uh, life is more than food. Right. I, I think a thing that can be, uh, when, we, when we see it going on in Scripture, one thing that could be a mistake we could make would be to say, look at Jesus fasting 40 days in the wilderness and think, I've got to do that. Right. I, I don't think that's what Scripture calls us to do. I, I think that was an extraordinary circumstance of Jesus' life demonstrating his resisting temptation, being tempted by the devil, all of those things like that. 
Um, and, and certainly, I mean, it's, you know, I, I've never known anyone that's fasted for 40 days. Um, like true fasting. True like fasting. There's, there's different fasts that are 40 days long, but you eat after the sun goes down and those kind right, of things. Right, yeah. Um, or fast from certain meats. You know? But but having, like you're saying, uh, you wake up and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to not eat until supper time today, or I'm going to skip lunch, and I'm going to skip lunch intentionally uh, because it is going to cause me some hunger. It's going to cause me some pangs, but I want those pangs to be a reminder of my hunger for, for the Lord yes. and my hunger for His Word. Uh, also, I, I'm sorry to interrupt this, No, I was going to say, this isn't some kind of like, uh, you, you know, your self-punishment that you're giving yourself to make, make amends before God or anything like that. It's, it's really a spiritual exercise to increase your hunger for Him. Also, I think when there's extraordinary circumstances, it's often helpful to fast. Mm. Um, I, I, just over a year ago, a friend of mine lost his very young daughter in a tragic accident. And our, our hearts, the hearts of the church, we were, it was breaking for, for this brother and sister in Christ. And I think many people fasted. We didn't call for a fast, but I, I'm pretty sure many people were fasting as they were praying mm. for them, asking God's comfort and and joy uh, in the sorrow and lament of losing this child. So I think extraordinary circumstances often bring about fasting, and I think that's healthy because it uh, it's a response of dependence on God. I, we need you in this time, Lord. We need you, and uh, we need you more than we need food. What do you think about? Uh, and, and what do you think about other types of fast? Um, like you fast from your cell phone for <laughs> yeah a couple of days. So the Bible says, "Be self-controlled." Yeah, and I think often we have to do things like that so that we are demonstrating that we are self-controlled and and really to regain self-control. So like mm. social media can just become a big monster in your life, time consumer, a, a sinful thing that's keeping you from the things that you ought to be doing. I think taking a break from that is excellent and yeah. helpful. I I don't know if I call it fasting, but it, whatever you know, just yeah. take stop doing it for a while. And um, I, I often during. Different seasons, I take a break from social media. For example, that's a, a good example, and I do that so that I I, I just keep balance and things. Mm, good, good word. Um, so this next question, so we uh, we've had two questions come to us uh, from Shannon Begaman. So Shannon, if you're listening, we're actually going to answer your first question, and uh, the second question that he poses has to do with hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, and I think we talked about it the other day that we actually want to uh, maybe devote a whole episode to the question of biblical interpretation. Uh, so Shannon, if you're listening, no, we're going to get to that. We're going we're gonna to come to that in a little bit. But... There will be a riveting episode on hermeneutics coming soon yes. <laughs> to a Sound and Faith podcast near you. So we're not trying to st- sidestep your question. Uh, we do want to get to that. We feel like it needs a lot of time yeah. uh, to really devote to that. But here's question number one. Um, what is the relationship between the church and Scripture? Here's the context of my question on the topic of biblical sexual morality. We had a former president of the U.S. refer to Romans 1, 24 through 26 as, quote-unquote, obscure verses, uh, and really it, which, which really didn't apply to whether or not homosexuality was a sin or not. Other more recent talk show pundits have stated that, quote, Jesus never mentioned homosexuality, unquote. Therefore, it must not be condemned by us. So what is the relationship between the church and Scripture when you see basically others taking Scripture out of context or calling these uh, you know, passages as obscure or saying Jesus never talked about homosexuality? 
Glad you asked this question, Shannon. It's helpful. Um, we affirm the doctrine of sola scriptura. Uh, the, the scriptures alone are our final authority for life and practice. And so uh, this, this former U.S. president did not hold that view, obviously, uh, did, not, um, did not view the scriptures rightly on homosexuality and different things. And so he had a view, and, he, and that view was prevailing in the culture, and he felt that view trumped scripture. And so he called those verses obscure. Uh, and that's what we do when we don't hold the Bible up as our final authority for life and practice. So the relationship between the church and the scriptures, is, it's, it's actually pretty simple. Uh, the scriptures are our final authority for life and practice. Mm. And when the scripture says something's wrong, it, it, it ceases becoming a debate, uh, and it becomes just a, a, a truth that we must bow the knee to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if God, if God be true, every man a liar, right? Like, let God be true and every man a liar. Like, we, we believe what God has to say about these things. Yeah. And we don't, we, we can't, uh, we can't just for, we can't just shift for every cultural moment, you know, and, and, and the world goes through all these different cultural moments where, uh, where something's considered wrong or right. Um, the scriptures, the unchanging scriptures, our doctrine does not shift um, there, there are no new doctrines. Um, you, you know, I, I know that in the in the Catholic Church uh, recently, there's a big debate going on because uh, there's some new doctrine being introduced. Mm, yeah, uh, that that doesn't happen <clears throat> among us because the scriptures are our final authority. Right. If it's if it's new, it's not doctrine. If it's doctrine, it's not new. You know, it w- w- what he's getting at here uh, is really what kind of divides progressive liberal, quote unquote, Christianity. From biblical Christianity, and <clears throat> knowing the the church that uh, the former president came from in this context right here, we're not gonna we're not gonna get into all the the weeds of who that was and all those kind of things like that. But he he came from a very liberal progressive denomination that denied the inerrancy of Scripture, that denied the authority of the Bible, and so when you have that view of Scripture, you or in a sense, you're you're free to pick and choose what you think is right and what is wrong in Scripture, uh, which is what he did in that sense. And when you do that, you always you always lose the scriptural authority. <laughs> right. Like it's always you always go with the culture and against the scriptures. That's that's always where that goes. Yeah, and and to the second part of the question right here, where where people are saying Jesus never talked about blank. Come on, <laughs> right? Yeah. Hey, to quote another president, "Come on, man." You know, <laughs> I can't. Um, you know, if we believe it's not a bad impression. Uh, come on, man. If we believe that Jesus is God, and we do, we confess that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Right. Um, and then we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. The whole Bible, it's the word of Jesus. You know, no, there's nothing in the Bible that uh, Old Testament, New Testament, writings of Paul, prophets, that contradicts anything Jesus has said. Uh, it, it's all his words, too. And, and so, you know, really, if we have a red-letter Bible, the whole Bible should be read. Yeah. If you have anyone who, 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 who tells you that the Bible is obscure on, this, on that particular matter, on, yeah. on biblical sexuality and on marriage and those kind of things— they're just wrong. Like the Bible's not obscure. It's, right. It's, it's extremely clear, and you know, uh, Jesus didn't speak to it specifically. He did. He did though. He did. He said, "In the beginning, it yeah. was not so." God created the male and female. Right. He quoted yeah. Genesis chapter. Was that three, mm-hmm. two? In so, the image of God, He created the male. Um, so uh, I mean, from um, Genesis um, 
And the two shall one become two. one yeah. flesh. I mean, Genesis he, two. He he quotes it. So I mean, yeah. he does he does mention biblical um, marriage. Yeah. Immorality. Can I tell you about a? Uh, we have time to do this. Can I tell you about an odd hobby that I have? I want to hear it. Yeah. This is not. It's related. It's yeah. related to this. Um, this is not a hobby that I devote a tremendous amount of time to, but I've always been. I've always been interested in the trends among denominations in terms of those that hold to Scripture and those that that do not. And I'm just kind of broadly speaking here, but like I'll hear about a denomination going one direction, and I'm wondering, I wonder, I said, are there any within that denomination that are still holding fast to the truth? Hmm. And, and I'll find these churches that, that say like, you know, they're, for whatever reason, they're sticking with this liberal denomination, but they themselves hold to biblical truth. And in every single instance, those that are that are holding fast to the gospel are the ones that confess the inerrancy and authority and sufficiency mm. of Scripture. Mm. Now, they might have doctrinal positions that I would disagree with, but when it comes down to the gospel itself and where that truth of the gospel comes from, it always comes from Scripture. Uh, and, and so when you begin to deny that inerrancy, that authority, that sufficiency of Scripture, uh, then you go off the rails. You go, go off the rails, rails theologically. Good word. Yeah. Good word. All right, final question. This one's from Kristen Holes, a church member back in Shadron. Um, I just lost my document here. I'll ask it here. Uh, how did the Catholic Church end up believing that works get you into heaven? Yeah, so the Catholic Church, um, I it did it incre- incrementally. Incremeni- <laughs> incrementally? <laughs> yeah, incrementally. <laughs> Step by step, um, but then all at once. Uh, Step by step in that there was little compromises here and there, adding different things to the gospel um, through the years, and and even through the centuries, adding adding different things to the gospel. But then all at once in the Council of Trent, when when they pushed back on the Reformation and said, anyone who believes in justification by faith alone is anathema. And so uh, there's a, a lot a lot going on with the question. Uh, modern day Catholics, uh, especially Catholic apologetics uh, apologists, would say something like, uh, "It's a myth to say that we believe that that the um, that salvation is by works. We don't teach that, but they do. They teach it explicitly, yeah. uh, even though they deny that. They 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 would, you know, they you, you need a dictionary to read some of the things that they say because they use the same words, but they have different definitions behind works and grace and things like that, and they would consider works part of grace and and so on." Um, but they do believe that, you know, Council of Trent stands, it's never been refuted, and in the Council of Trent they said, if anyone believes in justification by faith alone, he is anathema, he is accursed. Mm. Uh, so all at once and little by little, adding little things here and there, uh, teachings being added to the Church. And again, you know, to go back to uh, this precious doctrine of sola scriptura, this is why it's so important that we hold the Bible up as our final authority. Yeah, You know, and we don't just... Uh, shift with the winds, you know, and with, with diff- what different people think. Well, and it's also important, you know, how are they getting this? How do they get in this point? And it's because it's a lack of a cohesive, redemptive view of hmm. of understanding the Bible. Hmm. That when you know, and, and so I, I, my mind immediately goes to conversations I've had with Roman Catholics before, and, and they love to go to James chapter two. Uh, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Uh, you know, and they'll go on down to say, you know, faith by it. So it is also, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
And, and they'll take that out of context. They'll take it out of the context of the whole of Scripture and say, look, it says right there, faith without works is dead. Can that faith save him if it doesn't have works? And so, but but they they miss out on, on Paul, yes. and they miss out on the whole of Scripture where it talks about we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Um, and so that's the that's why it's so important to have just a, a cohesive view of the Bible and understand God's redemptive purposes in it. That's really good. That's really good. I, just one quick thing to go back to the Shannon's question. Yeah, uh, I, I found the quote. I wanted I wanted to say it rightly so that it's really clear. Uh, to the person who says Jesus never spoke to human sexuality, he never spoke to marriage uh, being between a man and a woman. Uh, here are the words of Jesus. He says. Uh, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, Jesus said. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Yeah. He spoke to it. It's right there. He spoke to it yeah. very clearly, without any ambiguity or shyness. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Hey, this has been a good episode. We, uh, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, and I think we have this many questions still outstanding. Uh, we'll have to the, answer them next year. We'll have to... <laughs> We're going to put them off until next year. Hey, I've got a I've got a question for you. Just a fun right. question to close it out right now. What's the what's your the best or most memorable Christmas present you ever received? Earthly present, so you don't have to say yeah. salvation. Or something. Mm. Do you do you have one in mind? No, I or don't. one that sticks out as memorable to memorable. you? Memorable, yeah. Uh, okay, my mom, when I was 16 years old, gave me a Schofield reference Bible. I had become a believer the summer before, mm. and uh, the gospel was new and exciting to me. Uh, it still is. And uh, a man was discipling me, and I was growing in the faith. And she gave me my very first Bible that I ever owned, and I loved it, and I cherished it. I found it. I found it not long ago as we were going through this move. Uh, pretty exciting. So an Aww. old Schofield reference Bible from 1989 is when I got it. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Well, you know, one that always sticks out in my mind is, uh, mine's not nearly as spiritual as yours right there, but uh, I think I was like five or six and woke up on Christmas morning and, and was running into our living room and the lights were all off, but yet I saw the silhouette of a bike oh, and, and that, cool. that picture of a bike in my mind, you know, it was such, such an exciting time. I was getting my first real bike. You it was know. a Harley Davidson. Exactly. Was, I had the mullet and everything. <laughs> awesome. Hey, uh, friends, it's been good. Uh, we've enjoyed doing this podcast starting it this year. It's been great. It has been. Really and, good. And uh, we've had good response from our congregation and some people afar off that listen. Uh, we're thankful that uh, you're listening, too. So we want to wish you all uh, just a wonderful mm. Merry Christmas. May you be blessed in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, of his humility, of his sacrifice, of God's gracious free gift of eternal life. We hope you know that life. Uh, we hope it's yours, and uh, if not, would you please let us know? We'd love to talk to you more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any final wishes, Pastor Mike? No, just Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Likewise. And Lord willing, we'll see you Sunday. <laughs>